Welcome to the Cowie Baptist Church podcast. To learn more about Cowie, including in our gathering times, visit us online at cowie.church. Enjoy the message. So I'm super excited. We're going to be uh, in the last book of the Old Testament. You guys that have been uh, walking through a Bible reading plan, we have journeyed uh, this far. And if you uh, are not familiar uh, with that book, it is a book called Malachi. And we're going to be jumping in there uh, today. If you find Matthew and hang a left, you'll be there. Uh, It is the last word that the Lord uh, spoke before a time that uh, as far as speaking through the prophets and for a time where we uh, don't have any recorded uh, words uh, from him during this this moment between uh, Malachi and between uh, this time that John the Baptist comes on the scene. And so we're going to connect all those dots next week. We're excited to lean in and see what God has for us this morning. And my heart is that we would see through this passage that God desires that our worship would be the real thing. Um, As we think about the real thing, I was reminded of uh, a commercial that I remembered when I was growing up. Some of you are, are maybe too young to have seen this, but we'll, we'll give it a shot here in a moment. You can see it on the, on the screen. Yeah, so they claimed that Coca-Cola was the real thing. I don't know if you remember uh, a lot of those things coming along the way. I remember when I was maybe 10 or 12 years old that there was a moment that Coke decided that they were going to release, they had this great marketing strategy and they were going to release the new Coke and it was going to be just this incredible moment. And does anybody remember how that went? Yeah, it was a flop, right? And they figured out that people like the the real thing. And I remember during some of those moments, right, there were these neat things that would take place and and they would uh, have people do these taste tests and they would give you these statistics of how uh, people liked Coca-Cola better than something else or had those kind of things. How many people in here, uh, maybe if you're in here and you'd say, you know, I'm a Pepsi person. Let me see your hands, your Pepsi people. See some Pepsi people in uh, the house. What about what about some folks that say, you know, Coke is the real thing. That's that's where I'm at. I'm I'm a Coke fan. Well, I, you know, I've got a. I, I'd like to do something this morning, and I need a volunteer. Let, let me see the Coke hands again uh, in the house here. Let's see. I see some people holding up uh, others' hands. There. Wow. Um, is that a volunteer, Josh? Is that a, no? That's not a volunteer. Tear. Uh, anybody want to want to show me how good you are with this uh, dynamic? Lena, you want to come up? You you do this. You got this. All right, come on up. Come on up. So. So here's how this is going to work. We have uh, some different products up here. Uh, We did this in our early service, and we had a a good time with it. And basically what I need you to do, uh, you're Coke. You're pretty familiar with the taste of it. Okay, so so we're going to need, there's two counterfeits there and one that is the real thing. And if you could taste those and then tell us which one is the real thing. You can try them again if you need it. It's if you're thirsty or if you. 
And we're counting on you right here for the real thing. Oh, number two, Chris. You want to take a second guess for the real thing? Number three, you were right. Yeah, let's give her a hand. So, thank you. And, and you, can, you can have one of those if you'd like. For, you can have all of those, actually. You can, it's a... So the interesting thing, we, we kind of surveyed these Coke fans and uh, both of our fans, both of our experts on the real thing uh, were, were kind of taken back by the counterfeit there. And we, we had in both uh, services uh, a, a different one that was picked as the real thing. But as we read the book of Malachi, I, I want to remind you that when it comes to our worship and when it comes to our commitment, when it comes to our relationship with God, that he desires nothing but the real thing. And here's what we find out. The Lord knows our heart. And as I read Malachi over and over this week, I was reminded that God sees not just the motions, but he sees the motive. And he desires that our worship be pure, right? He desires our authentic relationship with him. And he can spot anything that's not the real thing. So here we are at the book of Malachi. We've been walking through the scriptures and what we see in this book is that the exiles have returned home. That They have rebuilt, they have restructured. There's been these moments of incredible uh, celebration. There's been uh, a season that's been there. So they began uh, to have markets and there's began to be agriculture. There's began uh, to be things that are, are, are stable. There's a rebuilt temple. There's walls that have been Rebuilt, And God has used Ezra. God has used Nehemiah. And he's used them in an incredible way to reestablish Israel as a nation. And last week we saw just this incredible moment of revival as Ezra read the word of God. We read through Ezra and Nehemiah and we can sense and feel the excitement as they rebuilt the temple, as they rebuilt the walls. And somehow uh, this excitement that had been spurred on by prophets like Haggai and prophets like Zechariah, that, that this excitement that they had 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 somehow waned, that they had gotten in the midst of, of kind of this comfort and they had gotten in the midst of, uh, of the moments and there had been a loss of passion. There had been a, a complacency and a lack of commitment to the ways of the Lord, right? The big crisis of the exile, it's over. And the priests and the people had allowed worship to become mundane, to become routine, to become ritual. And God through Malachi, he addresses this half-hearted worship. He addresses it from uh, the priests to the people. He speaks primarily uh, to the priests, but as he speaks in this passage, we are reminded it is God's last word in the Old Testament. And this is a, a really unique, it's a really interesting book, the way that it's structured. It, it gives this almost Socratic dialogue that takes place. And so we have a, a dialogue between God and again, primarily the, the priests of the day. And, and the way that it works, you see this pattern that's pretty easy for us to follow. God declares a truth about who he is or he speaks of their uh, negligence, of their bad attitude. And then God knows their thoughts, right? So he declares a question immediately following that they are thinking. Then God gives the evidence of the claim that he has made. And then finally, God reminds them that in spite of their unfaithfulness, that his greatness 
right? And we sung this morning about the greatness of our God. And he reminds them that in spite of their unfaithfulness, that his greatness and glory is going to be made known regardless. And he gives this incredible picture of a people who had fallen in a rut. A people, my father-in-law used to love to say that a rut is just a grave with both ends knocked out, right? And these people, they had fallen in a rut. And in Malachi chapter one, beginning in verse one, we read these words, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Now the word Malachi means my messenger. And in this moment, we see that it's a proclamation of the word of the Lord that that is being given through Malachi. And he starts out with this reminder of God's great love for his people. Look at verse two. He says, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, here's that question, right? Here's what they're thinking. But you say, how have you loved us? And God responds, was Esau, was not Esau Jacob's brother, declared the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob. Now, these people, they had forgotten the love of God. They had taken for granted his great love for him. And what we see in this passage is these people, they doubted the love of God. God had chosen them. We, we see in the scripture that he had not chosen them because they were great in number. Fact is, they were small. That God in, in his grace and his mercy, that he had, had chosen them, that he had uh, worked in these people and that he had made a covenant with them, that he had been walking with them. And what we see throughout all the scriptures, God had been faithful to his covenant. And what we read is through so much unfaithfulness of his people. And when their circumstances were not just what they expected, when things were not maybe the way they thought they should be, it was very easy for them to doubt his love. He addresses the priests. He says they had despised the name of God. Look at verse 6. He says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect, says the Lord of hosts to you? O priests who despise my name, but you say, how have we despised your name? You are presenting defiled food upon my altar, verse 7, but you say, how have we defiled you? In that you say the table of the Lord is to be despised. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord? Of hosts. Now, we're reminded that all these sacrifices and all the sacrificial system, that, that God desired that these offerings, that these sacrifices would be of the best, right? Of the, the first, of those things that were without blemish because they were all pointing to a great sacrifice that would come in the Lord Jesus Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world. And so instead of giving God their best, what we see these people doing is they were giving them, they were giving God their leftovers. And Malachi says, if you had invited the governor. And one of the reasons we we know the timing of this, he even used the Persian word for for governor. And so he says, if you invited the governor over and you were going to fix him a big meal, you had this important person come into your house and you say, hey, we're preparing a meal for you. Well, when the person got there, right? And all of a sudden you open the fridge and you say, hey, we had spaghetti on Monday, had some chicken nuggets on Tuesday. We got this stuff right here is about to expire. Actually, it did expire, but it's only a couple days. So it's like, we all have different standards on that, right? Some of y'all drink the milk like at midnight, you got an alarm on the last day because you got to throw it out before that next morning. Don't want to be wasteful. I get it. But we all have different standards of that. But there's no way, right, that we would serve them leftovers. And Malachi says, you wouldn't give him the scraps. But here's what you're doing in worship to our 
God. And, and we think about those kind of things, right? And, and here's what the people wanted. They, they had this half-hearted worship to him. They had this half-hearted uh, desire in all of those things. They were presenting their leftovers, the, the, the things that were not the best. But here's what they did. They still wanted God to bless them, right? They still wanted God's blessing. They still expected that. Look at verse 9. But now will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us with such an offering on your part? Will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you. Now, this, this verse, look when I read it, it's so heavy. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. God says, I would rather that the gates be shut than this type of half-hearted offerings be made to me. I wonder when God looks at churches all around our world. I wonder if he still has some of those same feelings. I would rather the gates be shut as people come in and be led astray from false teaching of the word of God, from, from all these things that we can see in so many places, right? He said, I would rather you shut the gates than participate in worthless worship. Right? God desires purity in our worship. He desires the real thing. He desires faithfulness in his people. Look at chapter two. We see that these priests, they had, they had disregarded the covenant of God. Look at verse five. It says, my covenant was with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him as an object of reverence. So he revered me and stood in awe of my name. He's given them a picture. He said, this is what the priests were supposed to be like. He said, they were supposed to have this fear of God, and then they were supposed to approach me with this tremendous fear and this awe and this reverence and then this approach, standing in awe of his name. And here's the characteristics in verse six. True instruction, he says, was in his mouth, and unrighteousness was was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness. Listen, these, these priests, they were walking in integrity. There was an awe and a sense of reverence to the greatness of God. The instruction was true. The word of God, the law of God was in his mouth and his lips matched his life. He said that, 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 that he walked in un uprightness and he turned many back from iniquity. He said the way that these priests were designed, that they would live their lives and they would worship and revere God in such a way that it would cause many to turn from iniquity and worship the one true God. This was God's desire. For the lips, verse 7, of a priest should preserve knowledge and men should seek instruction from his mouth for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Right, we have a great high priest in Jesus and we as a people are a priesthood of believers with access to the very throne of God, with the ability uh, to, to speak the truth of the word of God and to share those things and to live in awe and reverence of the Lord. I'm reminded uh, of the role that I have in this church and roles of other pastors and deacons and people that are in positions of leadership. It should be said of us that, that we revere and stand in awe of God and that the truth might be on our lips and in our lives. And not leading people astray by the way that we live our life. See, the priests, they could have feared God and obeyed him and they should have. But instead, they went their own way and they led others down that same path. Look at verse 8. He says, but as for you, you have turned aside from the way and you've caused many to stumble by the instruction. You've corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. Do we not all have one father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously 
against each his brother as to profane the covenant of our fathers. Right? We see they were unfaithful to one another. There was an unfaithfulness we're going to see in their covenant of marriage. Uh, we see in verse 11, Judah has dealt treacherously and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves and has married the daughter of a foreign God. As for the man who does this, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob, everyone who awakes and answers or who presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. The people, they were marrying unbelievers. God had given them uh, this, uh, these, these guidelines and these instructions and these ways that, that were, were for their good. And he, he gave them these, these commands, right, that they would, that they would marry uh, believers. And they were, they were marrying these people that were not believers in the one true God. And understand that this wasn't an issue of race. This was a spiritual issue. It was a desire that there might be a purity of devotion to God because there's nothing more important than that. Purity. And he says this in, in verse 13, he says, this is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, and here's this question. He says, for what reason? God, why is this happening? And he says, because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. So in this, this passage, and we're going to lean in here, God's desire was that his people would be a faithful covenant, commitment-keeping people, that they would keep these commitments to one another. And, and instead of being a people that were marked by faithful relationships uh, to him and to one another, these people were all about themselves. They were all about their desires and they were disobedient. And what we see in this passage is that there was weeping, but the weeping wasn't over their sin in desiring repentance. The weeping was that there was a separation from God because of it. And there was a, a, he was not accepting their offerings, that there was this disconnect in the midst of that. And, and there's upset because they're not having the blessings of God, but there's no desire to be obedient in what God has called them to. Chapter three continues on and God challenges their attitude when it comes toward their finances. And I've seen and heard it said that maturity in Christ is seen in the wallets of the people. Verse eight of Malachi chapter three, the scripture says this, will a man rob God yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in tithes and offerings? Now God had commanded the Israelites to give a tithe, a tenth of what he had given to them. And if you have worshiped here for a very long time, for years, you probably would say uh, that you may have never seen me uh, or anyone else get up on this stage and harp and try to guilt people into giving or say anything. We, we don't even pass an offering plate. There's a box that you can give toward. You can give online. You can do those kind of things. But we understand that, that it is an act of worship to our God. And, and what we understand and, and what I'm convinced of is that if our heart is right, then that part of our life is right. Tony Evans says it this way. He says that a, a indicator light on the dash of our car that comes on reveals a problem 
problem that is hidden. It reveals a mechanical problem that is hidden, and that is in a mess, right? We have a car right now that has a, a light uh, that has come on, and we tested that light, and it said, hey, there's an air injection pump, blah, 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 smog pump thing that's there. And so I asked the mechanic, is that important? And they say, eh, not, not too important, right? And so I said, well, I'll probably just not worry about that light. And sometimes we have a light that comes on and, and you can do that long-term repair with a little bit of black tape. If you take the dash apart, you can put it on there and it kind of goes away. And sometimes we try to do that when God convicts us of things. But the same way that that light indicates something uh, about a mechanical issue, our attitude toward money, it is an indicator that can, in, that can give a, a visible declaration of spiritual problems, right? When our heart is right, our giving is right. And, and as we Think about the things that we've heard in here, what we see coming next in this verse that has just resonated in my heart, that, that in spite of their unfaithfulness, they had doubted God's love, right? That they had doubted his, his love. They had despised his name. They had defiled God's covenant. They had disobeyed the covenants of God. But in spite of their unfaithfulness, God's faithfulness and his unchanging character is on display. And when I read verse 6 in this passage, it just stirred in my heart. Look at Malachi 3. Verse six, it says, for I, the Lord, and I like the way that he puts that. He says, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. Now, this is a reminder of what smart theologians would call uh, the immutability of God. It's this reality that we change, but that our God remains the same. And in the midst of this moment, in the midst of their unfaithfulness, God's grace is elevated. God's grace is elevated in just an incredible way. Do you remember how God revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 34, 6? God says uh, that, that, that this is who I am. He said, I'm compassionate and gracious, slow to anger. He said, I'm abounding in loving kindness and truth. And can I remind you that the same God that was abounding in loving kindness, that was slow to anger, that was gracious, it's the same God that we serve today, that those things are still true about God. And what he said to them, oh, sons of Jacob, he said, it is because of my grace. It is because of my goodness. It is because of who I am that you are still here. It is because of that, that you've not been consumed, right? Grace, somebody laid it on the desk upstairs. I saw it as I was uh, coming out of the office and it said grace is God's unmerited favor. Right? It, is, it is his goodness getting something uh, that we do not deserve. And though they deserve uh, to, to be in an incredible mess, just like all of us, what we see is that it was by God's grace that they were still there. And can I tell you today that it is by God's grace that you and I are still here. It is by God's grace that we have our next breath. What we see in this passage is such a beautiful truth about God that he is immutable, that he does not change, that his grace continues to overflow into our lives. But it also tells us something about the things that we see in this passage and in the book of Malachi that, that does not change about our God. When it comes to our worship, God only accepts the real thing. That's all that he accepts. And our God is worthy of the real thing. See, going through the motions, it does not please one who sees our motives because God sees our heart. You know, Jesus was asked, what is the most important commandment? In Matthew 22 and in Mark 12, we see his response. And in Mark 12, the scribe says, what's the foremost thing? What's the, what's the most important thing? And in verse 29 of Mark 12, Jesus gives 
an answer that we would all do well to lean into this morning. And the scripture says that Jesus answered and said, the foremost is this. And he quotes the Shema from Deuteronomy 6. And he said, hear, O Israel, the Lord is, the Lord our God is one Lord. In verse 30, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So when we look at Malachi and when we look at the words of Christ, God commands all of our affection, right? That we, here's what we want to remember. We love him most. We love him more than anything. And it is in response to his grace and his mercy that in everything in our lives, that we love him most. I've heard it said that we're idol-making factories. I don't remember which pastor said that, but we have a tendency, right, to find all kind of other things to worship. And we have to realign our lives often as we examine those things in our life. But we are to love him most. As Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 6, I'm reminded that obedience to God, it, it is not uh, some maybe pain me kind of thing that we're talking about, right? That, that obedience to God, it is a, a, a sense of this radical decision of the will, right? There's this, this radical just commitment to the Lord that says, I love him with all my heart, with everything that's there. And, and it involves every part of our life, with all of our soul. It involves uh, everything, right? To be carried out without any kind of reservation, right? With all of our mind, with all of our might, with all of our strength, God commands and is worthy of all in devotion. He, he desires that we love him most, and the second thing I want you to take home is that we seek him first. We see these principles, right? We love him most. He is first in every relationship of our lives. And everything overflows out of a relationship with him. And we seek him first. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives this message and he is sharing. And he says, hey, don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about the things that you're going to drink or the clothes that you are going to wear. Don't worry about all these earthly things that you think about. He said the Gentiles, they worry and fret over all of those things. He said lost people are, are worrying about all those things. But in verse 33 of Matthew chapter 6, he says, but seek first the kingdom of God, right? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. We love him most. We seek him first. He is to be first in our life. He is to be first in everything. First in our day. You know, I've been trying to, to eat a little healthier and exercise a little bit and just be disciplined in that area of my life, an area that I was struggling. And I read uh, this inf interesting uh, information that said, whatever you do first in the morning, whatever. So, so the first thing that I would do in the morning was immediately try to, you know, kind of feel my way into the kitchen to get the coffee pot going. And they said, hey, if instead of doing coffee first, you'll drink a big glass of water that your body will begin to crave water first rather than the coffee. So I've been trying that. And so I, I wake up and I drink a giant glass of water and it gives me enough hydration to get to the coffee pot. But it's... <laughs> but when I wake up, the very first thing I think about, I, I, I get that little jug of water, right? And, and, and God 
it desires to be first in every part of our life. And I'm convinced that he should be the very first part of our day. Now, I know people have devotions at different times, a morning person, this person. But, but here's, the, here's the reality. Jesus would get up early and he would slip off and pray and, and be with the Father. Now, I think about, you know, we've got some football players in the room. We've got all kind of different uh, sports, you know, folks. And, and I think about almost like, hey, after the game, we get in the huddle and talk about what we're going to do when we leave God out in the morning, right? We need to declare our dependence on God in the way that we start our day, seeking him first. God, I'm depending on you today. The only way that I can keep the, the, the things that I need to do and be the man that I need to be and leave my home in the way that I need to be is, God, if you're doing that through me. And so in the morning, God, I, I desire that you might allow the power of your spirit, God, to work in my life today, Lord, that you might reveal to me people that I could share the good news of the gospel with, that you would give me courage, that you would give me the ability to see that, God, that you would keep me from sin, that, Lord, that I might take something from the word that I read today and that it might be hid in my heart, that I might meditate on that today, that you might use that to strengthen me, right? God desires to be first in our lives, first in our day. <clears throat> Can I remind you, he desires to be first in our marriage. The, the most important person in your marriage, if you're married in this, this room, the most important person in your marriage is God. He desires to be first in your marriage. God is number one in that relationship. It's been said that God is our number one and our spouse is our number two. The most important neighbor that we have, right? We love God with everything. We love him with all of our hearts. He, we love him most. And the second most important relationship in our life is our wife. She's our most important neighbor, our closest neighbor. We, we understand something about marriage that as a husband and wife, as they pursue relationship with God individually, that there's something supernatural and beautiful that happens. Not only do they grow closer to God individually, but they grow closer to one another. God desires him to be first in your marriage. God desires first place in everything. If you are not married here this morning, I, I want to remind you that when it comes to getting married, God desires that you be with the right one, right? That you start with the right one, a believer. The scripture is very clear that, that God desires that we would marry other believers, that we would be in relationship, that we would not be unequally yoked because here's the thing. This is a covenant between God and us. This is a covenant relationship between a man and a woman. And when we engage in that, there's something more at stake than just us trying to be happy in the midst of our marriage. There's something more at stake because God's desire is that the most important thing would be our worship to him. And, and it's not cruel and it's not weird and it's not anything else for him to say, listen, I don't want you to be unequally yoked with people that are going to lead you astray because the most important thing in your life is worship to the one true God. So if you are not married, God desires that you start with the right one. And if you are married, God desires that you understand the one you're married to is the right one. Okay, this is the, the reality that's there. You treat it like the right one. And, and maybe you're here and you say, you know what? I married an unbeliever. Listen, 1 Peter 3, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 would say that if you're in that situation, that you, uh, that you don't get out of that situation, that you don't uh, divorce that person, that you don't try to, to get out of that relationship, but that you, by the way that you live your life and the way that you demonstrate what you have is the real thing. Thing, that it might impact them and that they might come to Christ because of it. So whatever situation you're in, where you're at in your marriage, he desires that we would treat it like the only one, right? And God's grace is sufficient in the midst of those things. He, he desires 
that the marriage covenant, and, and we live in a culture that does not take the covenant of marriage seriously. It's a, it's a disposable society that we are in, but God desires that the marriage covenant be taken seriously, that it be the real thing. And what we see in covenant relationships, that the purpose of all the covenants, right, the purposes of all the covenants that we see in the word of God is the expansion of the kingdom of God. God desired that, that Adam and Eve would come together and that, and that gives us this picture that we would be fruitful and multiply. And the desire is that we would not just simply multiply multiply people, but that we would multiply worshipers, that we would multiply disciples. Listen, parents, it's not about raising children in our image. We may, I love it when somebody says, hope looks just like you. I'm like, yes, right? But we, listen, it's not about raising children in our image. It's about raising children in his. It's the real thing. If you're divorced here this morning, you know, we read these passages and as we read in Malachi, we read these words, God hates divorce. I want you to hear me this morning. God hates divorce, but he does not hate divorced people. Listen to me. He, he hates divorce because he sees the fallout. He sees the hurt and the pain and, and the hurt that was going on in his people. They were, these, these people, they were abandoning the wife of their youth and, and marrying these unbelievers and the widows and, and, the, and the orphans and the ones that were left behind, those, their children, all those people, they were impacted by those things. And God sees the fallout when his people don't keep covenant with one another, when, when they live according to their own desires. And, and I just want to remind you that if you are divorced, that that is not the unpardonable sin. And just like the scripture says that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, God's grace still abounds in the midst of all those situations. He has not abandoned you. He has not uh, forgotten you. And God still desires to use you. Don't misunderstand what the scripture is saying there. But God desires that we would take marriage seriously, that we would have covenant-keeping people, that we would keep our commitments to one another, that we would live for the glory of his name, that he would be first in everything, first in our finances finances, right? What is our, what is our lives? What does our finances reveal about our heart? Because here's what the truth is. God owns it all. That's what the truth is, right? When we look at the scripture, what we see is that it's not just about a certain percentage that we're supposed to give. The scripture says that God uh, loves a cheerful giver, but the reality is that God doesn't want just to be Lord of 10% of your life. God wants to be Lord of every part of your life. God it says, hey, I've blessed you with some. I own it all, and I expect you to steward it for the glory of my name. That don't mean you're, I'm trying to get you to give this, give that, but I just want you to understand God is supposed to be the, the Lord over all of our intentions over all of our finances, over every piece of our life. And it reveals something about our heart. He's supposed to be the first in everything. But the problem is this, right? We have a tendency to drift toward complacency. We have a tendency to find ourselves in a rut. We have a tendency to give God what's left over. Leftover time, leftover treasures, leftover talent, leftover everything. We half-heartedly approach the throne of the living God. And what we see in Scripture is that worship continues to involve sacrifice. Romans 12 will tell us that we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. And as a living sacrifice, we should never bring what's left over, something that we don't want, an offering that costs us nothing. 
that everything in our lives, all of our homes, all of our, our work, our communities, our church, in every one of those places, we should never be giving anything less than our best because as followers of Jesus Christ, we represent the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and the world is desperate to see the real thing. Not people that come and honor God with their lips, not people that clean up on the outside, but people that have been changed by the living God from the inside out and that live for the glory of his name, that seek him first that love him most, that that wear his name. And could it be that we're asking for the blessings of God and only giving him our leftovers when it comes to our worship? God only accepts the real thing. And that's what he's looking for from all of us. Obedience from the heart. And at the root of all of these worship issues, as a result, as, as, a, as a root of all these things that we see, it's an ingratitude for the grace and the mercy and the goodness of God. It's a heart issue. It reveals our love to him. The scripture says that, that obedience is better than sacrifice. Those people, they wept at altars, but they had no desire or willingness to change. But then God says something. We're gonna look at it next week. But in the midst of all this unfaithfulness, in the midst of all those things, God says, I'm sending a messenger. He says, I'm sending a messenger. And we're going to see him. We thought Malachi was the last Old Testament prophet, but really it's John the Baptist. And he says, I'm sending a messenger that's going to prepare the way of the Lord. And all of a sudden we're going to see John the Baptist see Jesus. And he's going to look and he's going to say, behold, right there. There he is. Look, the Lamb of God. The one that everything, all the scriptures that all we've been looking at has been pointing to. The Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And when you look at all the brokenness, the reality is that there's only one answer. And Jesus is his name. It is the answer for our sin. The forgiveness that we need. Jesus took on all of our sin and all of our shame on the cross of Christ. If you are in the midst of a marriage that's hurting, the answer to your marriage is Jesus. The answer is submission to him and to begin to live for the glory of his name. The answer for everything in our lives is Jesus. The world is desperate for the real thing. They need the real thing. His name is Jesus. And the only way that he will be seen is if they see him in us. The world needs the real thing. Maybe we're here today and we've had some things out of line. Maybe if we really examine our lives and the things that we do, the truth is that we don't love him most and we don't seek him first. And what we see in those things is that the grace of God continues to be extended, right? And we respond with repentance when we see those places in our life. And we often will see those. We often will find something shiny. We often will find something, uh, a relationship. We often find something that, that tries to creep and elevate its, its way into the proper place that only God should have. And we must remove those things. We must have God at the center of our worship, at the center of our lives, that we might, that we might worship acceptable to him. That when he sees our heart, listen, he's not looking for perfect people. The people that he was rough on was the Pharisees that tried to look so good. They were like whitewashed tombs, right? Pretty on the outside, but on the inside all messed up. God desires authentic people. People that will worship him in spirit and in truth. People that will recognize their sin, that will repent. 
that will live their lives continually pursuing the one true God. I'm going to pray for us and we're going to worship. If you're here this morning and you've never, you've never trusted Jesus as Lord and Savior, the very first step in any of this is that you might have a relationship with God that is the real thing. And if you're here this morning and you've never surrendered your life to Christ, you've never had a time in your life where you've repented of your sin, that's a, a change of mind that results in a change of direction. You're going your way and you turn and trust Jesus. If you've never had a time in your life where you've repented of your sin and believed and trusted Jesus for salvation, nothing that you could earn or do, but all that was been done for you on the cross of Calvary. When you look at the cross, you say, when, I, when Jesus died on the cross, it counted for me. He was dying for my sin and for my shame. And I believe and I trust in him as Lord and Savior. If you've never done that, I want to invite you to respond to the good news of the gospel. I want to invite you, if you are a believer and you recognize something is out of line, that this morning you would seek first the kingdom of God, that you would love him most, and that you would align those things in your heart, and that as we live, that people would see a church, that people would see individuals that are the real thing.